Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe because really, what else is there to do? Heading into week three of self-isolation and self-distancing, are we getting the message or are there tighter restrictions coming? We'll try to answer those questions on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dr. Todd Coleman, PhD Assistant Professor, Department of Health Sciences, Wilfrid Laurier University, and is with us now. Todd, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Uh, obviously, uh, cases up in Ontario again. I think there was 351 new cases reported today, se- uh, 1,706 the uh, total in Ontario at uh, at this point. How significant is this week in respect to uh, people returning from holiday, from March break, snowbirds coming in and such? Is this week significant? Absolutely, yes. This is the, the time that we should be seeing uh, if, what we've been doing for the last few weeks has actually uh, helped alleviate anything because most of the symptoms uh, tend to present themselves in 95, 97% of cases within 14 days. We would expect those people who've come back to places that had community transmission to show symptoms by now so that we can figure out whether or not uh, our social distancing measures uh, and quarantining and all of those things have been working. Surprised by the numbers we're seeing in Canada, uh, specifically those in Ontario and Quebec, I guess BC has said that they've leveled off a little bit. Um, How much of this do you think has to do with uh, just more people being tested uh, than the actual uh, rise in the illness itself? Yeah, it's definitely anytime we see any uh, increase in in cases, uh, and it always has to be considered in with the amount of testing that's being performed. So if you actually look at the rates, uh, that makes it equal across provinces. Ontario has a relatively lower rate compared to BC and Quebec as a function of the whole population because we are the the most populated province. Uh, So that might be a function of not having enough testing still at this point. Uh, are you uh, optimistic about, you know, we'd heard over the weekend that some things had kind of leveled out in British Columbia. Is that too early to be optimistic? I don't think it's too early to be optimistic. If we're seeing some trends about leveling out, then it might be something pointing to the successes that we're having about trying to contain this. Uh, but you're right halfway there that we shouldn't really jump the gun in terms of saying, yep, case closed. We did a good job. Uh, We need to be looking at this probably for the next few weeks to make sure that those levels are either staying the same in terms of new cases or even going down. Is there anything you can learn or we can learn from other areas, other uh, locations in how they've handled this? Are, Are we seeing anything that can give us any sort of indication on how we're doing or when this will peak? Yeah, we can compare ourselves to what's happened in China, where they saw roughly about two months of, of steadily uh, uh, steady new cases uh, with some decreases after those amounts of times. Now, we've been looking at the number of cases for over a month now, um, so we'll likely hopefully see some leveling off. We've had a little bit more 
preparation. We aren't as uh, densely populated as some of the regions in China. So maybe uh, we could be seeing some of the leveling off. Uh, and if we, we keep continuing on, keep testing, keep with the social isolation, I think this would be a very, very good thing to uh, control the spread. When you think of where we are now, doctor, and, and again, still seeing increases here in Ontario, we haven't, it doesn't look like peaked at this point. Um, we could easily be doing what we're doing until the end of April, uh, you know, depending on which way this goes. Is that accurate? By the end of April, we'll know a lot more? Absolutely. Uh, if we have a month's worth of uh, daily new case reports, We'll see uh, a much uh, clearer picture of what the trend looks like uh, to see whether or not what we're doing is working. Uh, And if it actually looks like it's leveling off or going down, I I feel as if we could probably see uh, some of this happening over the course of April into the end of April. But really, we won't know until that time. I mean, because considering we're really only about three weeks into this, maybe another four, um, will it take that long for us just to sort of even see any sort of increase or decline, to see any sort of trend? Yeah, it's definitely we do need more information, more data to look at in that month of April will be the crucial amount of data that we would need to see whether or not we can see a direction in our trends, uh, whether we, we've been doing a good job or uh, if we're slowing community transmission at all. As we move forward with this and considering how this started, considering where we were even a month ago, what concerns you moving forward? The biggest concern is that people become relaxed in their ideas about social distancing and physical distancing, Uh, that if we see a leveling off of cases, that people might prematurely think that we're doing a good job, that things can start going back to normal. Really, the idea is we need to squash this completely uh, so that no further transmissions are possible. Uh, jumping the gun again too fast would be uh, would likely result in a number of additional new infections. And again, considering where we are now and the fact that it certainly doesn't look like it has peaked or plateaued any anywhere or anytime soon in Canada, that's realistic to say it is going to be another month, isn't it, before we will really know more either way? Definitely. We need we need more data. We need more time. We're only a few weeks into this. Uh, when uh, and we need to uh, make sure that we have as much information before we end up changing anything that we currently have in place. In your mind, is the message getting out? Does everybody finally realize this? There was some thoughts a week or two ago that there was mixed messaging. Now it's pretty obvious what everybody should do. Are, are you concerned that everybody is is heeding this message? Uh, there's some concern that I'm seeing still a little, uh, a few people, as we've seen uh, in terms of uh, people still going out into public spaces and playgrounds and stuff like that. Uh, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm confident that people are finally starting to get the message. Uh, when you see the extra precautions, when you do go out to the grocery store, when you have to go out to the grocery store, these should be really strong messages that, that lead people to continue on, to continue the course, and to realize that uh, this is the way that things need to go from here on out. 
Are you convinced when you see how, uh, you know, if you look at the the stats from across the country, province to province and such, uh, are, are you are you uh, 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 reassured that Canada has a handle on this, that we're all moving in the right direction at this point? I, I do have some reassurance. We, we were testing fairly aggressively um, early on. Uh, compared to our closest geographic neighbor, the United States. Uh, and you can sadly see the, the very distinct differences between the two countries. Canada seeming to do much better than the United States right now, uh, which we saw delayed testing, delayed suggestions for social isolation. And the consequences are very clear, the number of deaths and the number of cases that are going on down there can be seen through that uh we certainly um uh you know it certainly appears like they're they're uh, a couple of weeks behind us on this even when you're watching uh their news outlets and information and, and how they're even discussing it it seems to be things that we were discussing a couple of weeks ago uh how does the population so- uh, size play into this as well i mean canada and the united states almost virtually the same size but certainly 10 times more people down there how does that contribute to all of this is that is that something that's on canada's side yeah, for sure. Canada is actually, uh, despite what some people might think, much larger than the United States mm-hmm. uh, in terms of geography. But the population size uh, in the U.S. is much larger, which means the population density uh, uh, is a, a more uh, a factor that needs to be considered a lot more than it does uh, here in Canada. Uh, however, uh, there's we do see uh, if we were to compare ourselves just by the numbers, if the U.S. only had 10 times the number of cases as us. They'd be in the 60,000 range, whereas they're over twice that right now. Uh, obviously, we saw a spike, and and as everybody returned from March break a couple of weeks ago, and there was like a million travelers coming back into Canada. How concerned are you with snowbirds coming back, or are, are most of them already back? Do you think is that is that something you're concerned about? Again, as we see more people traveling. Uh, that have traveled in the United States coming back to Canada? From a a transmission risk uh, lens, it's definitely a concern regardless of of, uh, uh, what's happening. Uh, People already come back. There are people uh, still uh, on their way back from the United States. And the the sad thing is, is as long as, uh, uh, is that if we, don't uh, quarantine ourselves or self-isolate. There's potential for added transmission because of the fact that there's just so many more cases in the U.S. Uh, right now. So uh, there is there is some concern on, on that level. Uh, is there any reason not to take this seriously now? Do you think that there's people out there considering... Uh the measures that government has taken, whether it's for returning travelers or self-isolating or such, and all of the information that's out there and that is available, are, are you surprised people, some aren't still abiding, obeying these rules, or as time goes by, is it pretty obvious? I, I am surprised. It, it's, uh, it's, you, considering the measures and considering the things that have affected our daily lives, the severity of this shouldn't be taken lightly. Uh, we are in a, a very uh, extreme position. Uh, we've all had to drastically change a lot about our own lives. 
Uh, and this really should be taken seriously, and this should follow through for a long time. Uh, the people who aren't taking it seriously, I think, may have some misconceptions that I'm just one person, it's not going to affect uh, anyone else. Uh, I'm only going to visit, for example, a few of my closest friends. But that's exactly what this disease needs, is for people to be interacting with each other to transmit. Uh, added on top of that, the other layers of people being able to pass it on when they have very little symptoms just creates an added uh, level of risk that, to me, uh, completely unnecessary. And it seemed at the beginning of all of this that it was just a disease, a virus for the elderly that attacked the elderly. But we're certainly seeing younger demographics being affected by this, aren't we? We are, definitely. And uh, we've seen the, the isolated videos of people uh, posting their videos from their hospital beds, uh, 20, 30-year-olds, uh, 40-year-olds saying that we need to be taking this seriously. Just because it affects predominantly the older doesn't mean the younger people won't be affected. And there are potentials for people to be very, very seriously uh, affected by this, no matter what your age. What advice do you have for those out there that are A, trying to deal with it, or B, not buying in? As we're into week three of all of this, any advice? The advice is stay the course. Uh, for those who are doing it now, this is fantastic. You're doing exactly what needs to happen. Uh, uh, social uh, isolation, social distancing uh, is the key. Uh, if you have symptoms, go through the self-assessment check so that you want to really reduce the time that uh, between infection and diagnosis so that you can potentially get uh, quarantined or get the uh, uh, the treatment you need so that you can get better more quickly. Uh, and for those who are doubting this, I think uh, try and try and go to the movies and see how well that's going to work. Uh, this mm. is a serious issue, uh, and uh, it should be obvious from day-to-day life. They don't close businesses uh, without reason, uh, and our, our lives have been very, very uh, profoundly affected by this. And if you don't take it seriously then it just means this will continue on for a much longer period than is necessary. How do you think this is going to change society moving forward? And I know there's no real answer to this, but (laughs) I I mean, some are asking, could this be the new norm? That's a big question. Yeah, we're we're in uncharted territories. We don't know whether or not we're going to see those second waves that people are talking about. We don't know whether or not this is going to die out in the summer months. Uh, We don't know whether or not, like the first SARS uh, almost 20 years ago, uh, if it's just going to die out completely. Uh, We're sort of in uncharted territories. And I think what happens from here on out is uh, our governments, our public health officials, uh, and even the regular or general population uh, will probably take uh, these infectious diseases a lot more seriously Uh, we'll likely see a lot of uh, uh, hand sanitizer uh, being circulated for a very long period of time after this, even once we start being able to interact with each other. Hmm. Dr. Todd Coleman has been with his PhD assistant professor, Department of Health Sciences, Wilfrid Laurier University. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated, and you take care. Thank you very much. You too. Uh, The premier had a, a tough tone, leading me to believe that perhaps some more strict 
uh, regulation coming down by this weekend? We really don't know. Here's the tone that the Premier took this morning, just recently, this afternoon, rather, in his press conference. We need every person in this province to take a hard look at their habits. Because as I've always said, every option is on the table. And we're prepared to take further action if we do not see the spread of this virus slow down in the coming days. My heart breaks when I see what's happening around the world. As the death toll from this virus rises, we must continue to take advice of those impacted. It's easy to turn on the TV and think what's happening in Europe can't happen here, but it can happen anywhere. Our story in Ontario can be different than Italy's and Spain's, but only if we all take this seriously. All right, that's Premier Doug Ford speaking a little earlier on at his uh, daily press conference, which usually happens around uh, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, again restated his commitment to be up front, leading one to believe (laughs) that he was not happy with what he saw over the weekend and still many people uh, getting together and and not practicing social distancing. So uh, I guess at this point, uh, as the Prime Minister has said, it's up to us whether they torque up these restrictions or not. Uh, Also, with the end of the month, many are concerned about rent. If you pay rent at uh, the beginning of every month, it's coming due in a couple of days. Let's bring in Ken Hale, Director of Advocacy uh, Advocacy and Legal Services, Advocacy Centre for Tenants Ontario, and is with us now. Ken, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks, Scott. We've certainly heard lots about aid, and, and it's been coming at us in various different directions and such. If you are a renter out there and you've lost your job or are having difficulty because of where we are uh, with COVID-19, what can you do? What do you do? Well, I think you're certainly in a difficult choice. And like many people across this country and across the world, it probably is creating a lot of anxiety I think the premier a short time ago was talking about rent, made it clear that the legal system in Ontario is not going to be used to deprive people of their homes while this emergency is going on. In what he said, they can't pay the rent. They aren't going to be evicted. The priority is putting food on the table. Uh, so, for the immediate period, I mean, I think the real, the number one priority is not to be worrying about what's going to happen with your rent, but it's to follow the directions that you've been, that we've all been given to stay home, stay in place, keep your home, keep in your home. And, you know, at some point we're going to have to worry about the consequences, but we don't know what that point is. And we have to worry about immediate efforts to stop the spread of the virus. And that means landlords are not allowed to take any action to evict people. They shouldn't be pressuring people or, but people have to take a realistic look at their finances. People have to be paying attention to these programs that the government has talked about. The federal government has announced $2,000 a month. Um, for an emergency benefit for the next four months. People should be applying for that online if they don't have other sources of income. But um, 
you know, how that gap's going to be filled in between what people had before and what this is, we don't really know yet. If there is someone who's a renter who is listening and has concerns about the end of the month, where do they start? Where should the first place they go? Well, I, you know, there's so many tenants in so many different circumstances and, you know, they, they, they're at least a third and more of the people that live in this province live in tenant households. So, there's a wide variety of circumstances. Some people have a good personal relationship with their landlord. They can call them up and talk to them. Some people's landlord is a faceless bureaucracy that, you know, presumably there's somebody there who you could talk to, but maybe not. And everything in between. So, you know, you have to look at your personal circumstances, but, you know, this we got to keep in mind that this is a situation that's impacting so many people. You're not the only person who's in a jam. And the direction is clear that the priority for people is human safety and, you know, not making sure that everybody pays every last bill that they get right now because the world is in a state of economic chaos. What is the so biggest challenge? Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I just think people have to be realistic about their individual situation. And don't put yourself, you're already under enough stress. Don't put yourself under more stress worrying about what's going to happen. We have government commitments to keeping you in your home. And, you know, we as an organization, that's, you know, that's been one of our main objectives in the 20 years we've been around is keeping people in their homes. And, you know, now's the time when, society at large has accepted that and and you know no matter what the circumstances are what is the biggest challenge or concern you're hearing from renters right now um well it's you know we're getting a lot of concern about whether or not some landlords are going to be trying to take illegal action and force people out um you know Sneak in the sneak in the building and change your locks or something. People are worried about that. I really don't think it's going to happen that much, but we're taking steps to alert police forces across the province to the possibility of this and to ask them for some, you know, sensitive, prompt enforcement and dealing with these problems. And the other thing is the longer term. How long is this going to go on? Am I going to get into debt? Once I get into debt, how am I going to get out of it? And, you know, those are questions that I would love to be able to answer, but I don't think I can, and I don't know anybody who can. So really, we just want to try to encourage people to try to keep the fear down. And, you know, we don't think there's generally going to be immediate consequences here, but the, how this plays out is going to be a longer-term thing. And I think so far we've had positive responses from governments, but ultimately it's the governments at provincial and federal level mainly, but also our local governments are going to have to step up and help people out of this, out of the mess that we're in once we understand what the dimensions of the mess are.
Uh, you bring up a very valid point, though, here, Ken. What happens once this is over and the pendulum swings back? Are we going to see all of these issues come to a head all at once, whether it's an eviction, whether it's a rent increase or what have you? I mean, there's going to be a period of catch-up when this is over. Well, certainly, um, you know, I mean, we're hopefully we're in a time where everybody's pulling in the same direction to try to accomplish the same thing right now. As things go back to normal, society will start to polarize into the usual interest groups. But certainly governments so far have shown a willingness to address the concerns of all these different interest groups. The small business people, I mean, they haven't said anything particular about how they're going to deal with landlords who've lost money. But they've certainly said small businesses, we're, you know, we're doing what we can to help small business people where we have these special programs to allow them to apply for wage subsidies of up to 75 percent so we expect that you know proper thoughtful government action will keep the conflict down that that this is causing uh actually our next guest uh, nearly a million canadians have signed a petition that is calling for the cancellation of rent during the pandemic i believe this is more small business uh oriented but what are your thoughts on something like that is that too drastic i mean again someone has to pay for that at the end well but each tenant each individual business owner has to you know people are in such different circumstances and You know, there has to be, it seems to me that there is going to have to be some kind of rent relief program at the end, because no matter how much effort, you know, the job losses and the business closings are so massive that just sort of the normal, let's just work out a payment plan kind of arrangement is not going to work. So there's going to have to be some kind of government program. I think you know, these various efforts to draw attention to the crisis that so many people are in, I think are, you know, many of them are grassroots efforts that are really a response that are stimulating governments to actually take the situation seriously and to think about what it's like down here on the ground level and how are we going to help people. So far, I think the signs have been positive, but it's going to take continual People are going to have to continue to speak up for themselves and, you know, they're come up with thoughtful and creative solutions and work together to try to solve what's in front of them. Ken Hale has been with us, Director of Advocacy and Legal Services, Advocacy Center for Tenants Ontario. Rent coming due at the end of the month. Uh, Good news is it appears governments uh, from all stripes and levels are coming to help out. Ken, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. All right. Thank you. All the best to you and your folks. You too. Uh, Nearly 1 million Canadians have signed a petition that is calling for the cancellation of rent during the pandemic. Uh, To talk more about all of this, Joe Rutherford is with us, a tenant and small business owner who started the the petition in regard to rent and is with us now. Joe, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. So, Joe, is this centered around residential uh, renting, or is this more for businesses you're talking about? So, 
So, so technically speaking, the uh, the petition calls for the suspension of both rent and mortgages during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, just because we recognize the fact that, I mean, we're all in this together and uh, the people paying their mortgages need help as well as people renting. Uh, what about the uh, the the financial uh, help that governments on both levels have offered uh, so far? Uh, not enough. You think that rent should be just or, or mortgage payments should be just stopped? So, I mean, the federal government has stepped up with some really amazing things, some really amazing promises, um, all of which are, are are really fantastic. But they don't come into effect for probably the next two to three weeks. So at this point, what we're really talking about is what everyone is, is going to do on April the 1st, which is in like two days. So, yes, those mm-hmm. subsidies, if, if, they, if they come through and if, if they, they, uh, they work for someone in my position, fantastic. Hopefully that helps us for May the 1st. Um, but it's up to the provincial government to step up and help us with, uh, with April 1st because, because so far they haven't done anything. Uh, so, uh, again, we've, we've certainly heard from banks that are going to extend mortgage, uh, payments and that sort of thing. Uh, is that not sort of similar to what you're doing? No. Um, and I mean, the banks, it was great. Uh, the six major banks stepped up and said that they may offer deferrals to some people who have mortgages, but the fact of the matter is we're hearing from so many Canadians who found out they just don't, they don't, uh, they're not applicable, that they, they don't count for those. So uh, especially if it's not on a principal residence, you're absolutely not eligible to have your mortgage um, deferred. So I live in a one-bedroom apartment here in Riverdale in Toronto, and my landlord does not, uh, cannot apply to have her, her mortgage deferred. So she still needs us to pay the rent on the first in order to make her mortgage payments. So there's, there's a huge gap, there's a huge, a huge gap right. that exists here. Um, you know, the gap between Premier Ford mandating, I shut down my business, we go home and we all do our best to quarantine to, to keep this from, from exasperating the situation and keeping us out of work for months and months. And the fact that we still have to find a way to both pay our rent and our mortgages and then also have enough funds to eat for the next who knows how long. So are you talking about an extension, an expansion of the current deferral uh, situations that are out there? Is this just to expand it more to include uh, business, tenants, renters, and even those with mortgages? So, I mean, the position itself, when I started it, was, was just speaking to the, to the, the need for residential, for where people are living on the very mm-hmm. basic you know, the very basic level, hey, we need to live and we need to eat and we also need to self-isolate. So it started there. But my own personal opinion, I mean, obviously, the effects on small businesses have just been absolutely massive. And we're looking at, at so many commercial tenants in the city who have astronomical commercial rents that they are on the hook for. And if they cannot get some sort of a funding, which the feds have promised, which is amazing, if it comes through and if it's substantial enough, these people will not only be out of business, but also not have a livelihood to depend on anymore. And you're talking about a deferral here. Is that is that accurate? So just and, and what they've done with, I guess, mortgages and homes is if you need six months. I even heard one of the car companies saying this. If you had car, uh, I think it was maybe Ford, if you had car payments that they would defer them for six months. Usually what they do is just tack that on the back of uh, of the loan or the mortgage or what have you. 
Uh, is that basically what you're talking about? Because again, who really comes ahead out ahead of this in the end is the banks because they're basically just extending your your mortgage to get you through where you are now. Yep, absolutely. It's it's absolutely no skin off their backs. They just make a little bit more interest on the other end. Sure. And I mean, the mechanics of these of these types of things are certainly beyond me. I'm just a small business owner, a dog walker in Toronto, so I really couldn't couldn't set out how it should go. I mean, when we're talking about deferral for something like a mortgage, sure, it makes sense that you just have an extra two payments on the end of your 25-year term. But when we're talking about people who are living like paycheck to paycheck and barely making it by at that point, and then saying to them, okay, you've got no income at all, you still have to feed your families, we're just going to defer these rental payments. And that's asking them to amass a debt. And and if we're looking at, at what the Ford government is suggesting, that they're going to roll out all this money, billions of dollars, in order to subsidize things, I think that's where the subsidy should come into play. Two weeks ago, when we started waving the flag, saying, hey, this is going to be urgent. We need help here. The Ford government should have organized and stepped up and said, okay, we're going to subsidize this. We're going to step in. We're going to make sure that either the renters are going to get subsidies for their rent so they can stay at home and still afford to eat, or the landlords are going to receive those subsidies directly. But unfortunately, we're two days away, and, and nothing like that exists yet. Uh, surprised by the amount of interest in this petition. One million have signed so far. Uh, well, <laughs> at this point, I'm not surprised. But when I, when I started it, I don't know if I ever expected it to go quite this far. Um, but, but yeah, it's been a phenomenal amount of interest, not just from, from Canadians and Ontarians and, and everyone in my situation, but we've heard from all over the world how this is, this is unilaterally affecting so many of us. And, and it, 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 it's, it's bolstering and, and, and exciting in that sense, but I'm, I'm sad to see that it has to exist. Mm. Uh, and how do we find the uh, petition, Joe? How do we sign up? Sure. So it's um, hosted by change.org and it's change.org forward slash COVID slash 19 homes. All right. Joe Rutherford is with us, a tenant and small business owner who has started a petition in regards to rent, uh, canceling, deferring, postponing until after the pandemic. Already one million Canadians have signed on. Joe, thanks for the time. Good luck. Anytime. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. How does this all affect the trucking industry? Of course, we know that uh, governments at all levels making sure that the supply change supply chains have stayed open truckers obviously uh, on the front line there let's bring in Stephen Lakowski uh, Ontario Trucking uh, Association and is with us now Stephen thank you for the time much appreciated thanks a lot Scott I appreciate being on the show how is this pandemic affecting the trucking industry well we're not immune to the impacts both uh, on a personal and business level so uh, it's it's been a challenge for for our sector, but uh, as you mentioned uh, at the outset of uh, the show, uh, both uh, the government of Ontario and the government of Canada have provided excellent support for our sector uh, managing through this, and uh, that's why the trucks are on the road. The trucks are getting through the border, and uh, we're continually receiving excellent support from all levels of government to make sure our drivers are respected and uh, are able to do their job. Is it more complicated getting through the border right now because of this? Somewhat, uh, but uh, a lot of effort and work was done by, uh, again, Queen's Park, Ottawa, Washington, 
our association and our associations uh, in the United States to make sure that we work through this process in a collaborative manner. Everyone understands more than ever the importance of our industry and our nation's truck drivers and in fighting COVID-19 and making sure that uh, product is getting into the United States and back to Canada. You know, just a simple matter, just anyone listening to this show, 50% of your food products come from the United States and 100% of that product is moved by truck. That's why it's so important to keep the border open and that's why truck drivers in our industry is so critical. Uh, what about with the reduced amount of traffic? Is that helping the trucking industry? Well, you know, obviously with less traffic, uh, you know, it's easier for our drivers to maneuver from point A to point B. Uh, but reduced traffic is also a symbol of factories shutting down. And uh, our members, when factories shut down, uh, that's not just having an impact on the workers uh, at those factories. That product moves by truck. That means a trucking company right now, whoever was associated with moving that product, now doesn't have product to move. So uh, it is a challenge for our industry. And in particular, uh, as we move COVID-19 product and food products that's still moving uh, through the supply chain, what's really happening to our industry, unlike others, is we're moving around half empty. So a truck goes from point A to point B and back to point A, uh, and, and in most cases, full both ways. And that's how you get paid. During COVID-19 and during this crisis, trucks are moving, but in many cases, full one way, empty another. So that means you're still uh, operating under the same cost structure, but half your revenues are disappearing. And that's a challenge for our industry, and that's a challenge we're working with governments to see how to address. Would there be less trucks on the road today because of those businesses that the businesses that have had to shutter? I mean, you know, Absolutely. we're thinking we're thinking that there's more because the supply chain's got to stay open. But again, as you mentioned, if nobody's working, those factories are closed. You know that that is a uh, a misconception that well, the trucking industry is benefiting by the increased demand of certain products, and while that may be the case in, for a small amount of companies. But even within those companies, as I mentioned before, uh, they are always matching loads and customers based on where they're where they're heading to and where they're going back to. And so that means uh, either you have no product to move from point A to point B, or you only have half loads, and that's that's also problematic. Uh, many would see, you know, a, a driver, an operator of a truck behind a wheel. That's it. Doesn't get any more self-isolating than that. What are some of the challenges, health-wise, that maybe we're not seeing as well? Well, I don't, I don't think the truck driver has any other health challenges than uh, than, a, than a, any other person in the supply chain or any of your listeners. As, as you mentioned, the job in of itself is self uh, is isolating. You're by yourself for considerable lengths of time. Trucking companies uh, and drivers are implementing all the COVID-19 practices that are required, uh, as are our customers uh, with regards to paperwork, cleanliness, uh, social distancing, etc. One of the ugly sides of this is that, well, not all customers are doing this. Uh, unfortunately, and not an insignificant percentage are. They, are. they are not letting drivers get out of their truck with regards to using washrooms, yeah. providing them with beverages, meals, etc. And, uh, you know, it's a challenge. And I believe right now, as I'm speaking to you, the Minister of Labor for Ontario is actually talking about that in a, in a press conference. And uh, that's m- most appreciated by our industry. 
there's a lot of great companies, including A&W and McDonald's, that have uh, developed trucker-friendly drive-through policies. Obviously, pretty hard to get a 53-foot trailer through a drive-through. <laughs> They've developed apps to deal with that. And so, you know, that that's what we're asking everyone in the supply chain to do. Uh, you know, you need to protect your employees during COVID-19. We understand that and respect that. But when your solution excludes our drivers, that's not a solution. It's time to figure it out, just like A&W did, just like McDonald's did. So let's figure this out together. Disrespecting truck drivers during this crisis is not the solution. Well said. Stephen Laskowski has been with his Ontario Trucking Association. Stephen, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. With all the scariness of this pandemic and anxiety, uh, you know, there's always something good to come out of things like this, including the caremonger movement or caremongering movement. What is it? What does it all mean? Let's bring in Mira Estrada, a cultural commentator and co-host of Culture D on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto, and is with us now. Mira, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Of course. So what is a caremonger? What is the caremongering movement? Yeah, so it's sort of like what you said. There's a lot of scariness going around, um, scaremongering. It's almost the opposite of that, right? So it's spreading the care and the love, and it's all happening on um, social platforms. And it's anywhere from, like, groups of small, just a few people, to literally thousands of people um, getting together and helping each other out. So I didn't even know what this was, I think because actually the word didn't exist about over a little over a week ago. And uh, women in Toronto started the caremongering TO group on Facebook. And now it's grown to over 22,000 people in the Toronto group. And there are now over 35 caremongering um, groups on Facebook across Canada. And they're doing amazing things from um, helping people uh, dropping off groceries to them, um, helping them out with um, emotional needs, providing free webinars, um, even just jokes, humors. Everything is organized with hashtags. ISO is for people who are looking for help. Um, people who are offering help have a different hashtag. There's humor hashtags. There's research hashtags. Um, so I love that everything is very organized and um, it's gone viral and I, I just love how many people there are they're doing so many great things in this time where like you said we're feeling anxious and worried and there's a lot of fear going around but there's also a lot of great going around as well before COVID-19 we talked at great length on this show about how divided a world we now live in how divisive politics has become how you know if, if you're uh, an advocate for a certain cause that's all that you see there's no there's no other uh, uh, views within a movement, so to speak. Do you think, do you think hopefully that this pandemic could actually unite us, bring us together instead of being so divisive? Or when this is over, do we go back to being the normal, you know, angry people we were before? You know what? I, I do. I have hope in that. I mean, if you just look at, you look at our political views and how we've really, like, I have to give it up to the politicians. Like they have really put their politics aside. If you look at the provincial and the federal mm-hmm. levels and um, you know, they're really working together and even, you know, the commentators um, in the political spectrums, they have put um, their viewpoints aside to just really work to the common good. Um, 
so I do hope that this continues. And even in this caremongering movement, like I hope that this moves past just individuals and groups in the community doing good. I hope this actually works to be build, being built into policy and institutions. And like, I feel like we're at this fork in the road where moving forward, these types of things, aiding uh, people that need help, people that are in vulnerable positions, this can be part of government's framework for post-crisis world. Uh, can you see this caremonger movement growing? Can this become as big as a Me Too movement or any other movement that we've seen of late, especially ones that, that get their start on social media? I do. You know what? And because, I mean, I think it's part of human nature and humankind is we do things out of the need to want to feel good as well ourselves, right? So there's a part of it, yes, it's helping others, but in this caremongering, it's the people that are doing the help that are also feeling good as well. And so, you know, who doesn't want that good feeling? It's sort of like with that social media fix, who doesn't want to feel good as well? And I think people are getting that good feel from this caremongering. Yeah, who would have thunk helping helps both those that are helping and those that are being helped? Exactly, yeah. Amira yeah. uh, Estrada has been with us, cultural commentator and co-host of Culture D on Global News Radio 640 Toronto, uh, talking about the growing caremongering movement. Mira, thank you so much for the time and insight. Good luck. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of, uh, as we see over the course of the weekend and more positive tests, Ontario continues to climb. Uh, as we see, uh, I guess, more testing being done, as well as uh, more people uh, who had returned from spring break and such, and how this works its way through the system. Uh, let's bring in Jonathan Dushaw, professor with the biology department at the Institute of Infectious Disease Research at McMaster University, and is with us now. Jonathan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Uh, there's been lots of talk, Jonathan, in regard to testing. Obviously, uh, there isn't enough tests to go around. Otherwise, I guess the best thing would be to just test everybody, and then we would know who we could um, uh, quarantine, who we had to quarantine, and who we don't. But how concerned are you uh, about those with the situation that we have, that there's people out there that may be or may have or may will test positive but don't show any symptoms whatsoever? How concerned are you that those, are, those people are out in the community and possibly affecting some of the most vulnerable? So obviously the inability to get tests for everybody who wants them is a big problem and people not knowing how best to behave is a big problem. I've been encouraged at the amount of social distancing I see in my life. Uh, my department, the Department of Biology at McMaster is closed. We're not teaching students, of course, the schools have closed, so I'm hoping that everybody is practicing sensible social distancing. Getting viral tests, tests that let people know if they're likely to be infectious, if they feel ill, if that's likely to be COVID, is important. Um, but it's also useful to think about antibody tests. And I think when we talk about testing right now, you know, the disease is just moving in, the first priority is to figure out who's sick, who might be infectious, and deal with that. Um, but I'm hoping that we're also going to see a ramp up in antibody tests and find out more about how the disease has already spread, how many people have had it, and 
how dangerous it's likely to be going forward. There's a lot of questions, and a lot of it is limited by our ability to test people. Um, what is the best way to test at this point? Is and I believe now, if you're showing symptoms and you know go through the proper channels and such, you are tested. Uh, is that the way we should be tested? Uh, we should be testing. Should we be perhaps testing those that are in the most vulnerable categories, nursing homes, that sort of thing? That's a good question. Or should we be testing people who work with vulnerable yeah. people? Exactly. Um, so my expertise, maybe I should have introduced myself a little more. Uh, my expertise is that I'm a modeler. I'm somebody who makes dynamical and statistical models and tries to figure out where the disease is going to go. I have not kept up to date on how many tests are available or on the hard decisions people have been making about testing policy. In theory, I think it would be a great idea to test people who are moving from the community to nursing homes. I don't know, but I assume there's some policy of testing people who are moving from the community to hospitals. And again, most of what we're doing now are viral tests, but I think it would be really exciting the possibility of getting antibody tests. And the goal, I think, for the next few months is to have people who have negative viral tests and positive antibody tests. That means that they're immune to the virus but not spreading the virus. And while there's no absolute guarantee, I think that people are already starting to look at the possibility of treating these people as safe people and using them as bridges between the community and vulnerable populations. So what is the advantage of the antibody test? Why is that important information? The antibody test is important for at least three reasons, and I'll see if I can... um, calm myself down enough to to discuss them clearly because it's very exciting to be on the radio and also because I spend a lot of time talking to other scientists and less time talking to radio celebrities such as yourself. Um, (laughs) In other words, words, make sure it's in layman's terms. (laughs) I'm doing my best. So the antibody test measures immunity, and immunity is absolutely the bottom line. The only way that COVID is going to stop being a major threat is when most of us are immune. And most of us are either going to get immune in the next few years by being infected or by being vaccinated. So one of our goals is, can we make it through so that most of us get our immunity from vaccination rather than from illness? Another goal is, um, if we're not sure we can make it through, can we flatten the curve? And I'm sure you've all heard about that. The idea Mm -hmm. being that if we're all going to get the virus or almost all of us are going to get the virus and some proportion of us are going to wind up needing medical care, we want to spread that out so that the hospitals and the doctor's offices can deal with it. So that's one of the important facets of immunity. And the antibody test is what tells us who's immune So that means you've sort of crossed to the other side. We don't really know yet how much danger you're in from this novel coronavirus, even after you're immune. But it's a pretty safe bet that it's much, much less than the first infection. So that's what most of us are counting on. So we can learn a great deal from those who would test positive, but yet don't show any symptoms. 
So we can find out, that's the second thing, if we ha can do antibody testing on a wide scale, we can find out how many people have had the infection. And that's the denominator. That's what enables us to figure out how dangerous the disease really is. And people are still scrambling and arguing about that. We really don't have a good sense, as far as I know anywhere, of how many people have been infected. And by infected, I really mean you've been exposed to the virus and you've made these antibodies and you're now immune. That's the most important question, is how many people are immune. That's what tells us um, how dangerous the disease is. That's what tells, well, that's what tells us how dangerous the disease is in two senses. One is how much is it gonna keep spreading in the population because as we build up immunity, it's gonna be less. And the other is, how dangerous is it to you if you got it? If we found out tomorrow that there's 10 times as many infected people in Hamilton as we think they are, then that means that the number of hospital cases we've seen becomes less scary than we thought because it's the number of hospital cases drawn from 10 times as many people as we thought. So that's the last main importance of the antibody test. One is that if you know you're immune, it might change your behavior in a good way. The second is we want to know how far the disease is spread, sorry, how far the virus is spread in the population. And the third is we want a denominator so we can figure out how dangerous viral infection really is and eventually how dangerous it really is for different risk groups and age groups. Uh, an interesting information that came out today as well, and I'm sure you're well aware of this, but th it's being made to the public. Uh, 93% of those that have been tested are negative. As you say, it would be fascinating to know, uh, to be able to have the, the data, the information through tests, how many actually tested positive, but show absolutely no symptoms of this whatsoever. Right. That could tell um, you a lot so of information. So I'm, I'm going to have to answer that slowly because, in fact, I spent this whole morning um, talking to people in Africa about the spread of COVID in South Africa, which is my excuse for not having heard today's news. I did try to catch up on today's news while I was uh, listening to your intro, but I didn't apparently do a good job. But if these are viral tests, um, it's obviously very interesting in terms of how far we think the disease has spread, but it doesn't give us as much information as you might think about who's not getting sick because the people who are tested are already being tested for a reason, right? So there's a concern, and when I say concern, it's not all a bad thing, it's just something that we wanna know if it's happening, that there might be chains of transmission that involve people who don't get sick. And in that case, those people might be much less likely to be tested. In some places, those people have almost no chance of being tested. So, again, that highlights the difference between viral tests, which is mostly what we're doing now, mm. and antibody tests, which is the thing that we need to do to complement that. If you have been infected and, and have recovered, does that mean you are immune to this in the future? So that's the million-dollar question, and that's the thing I tried to allude to earlier, which right. means that I've been talking too fast, which is a thing that I always do. Um, no, I'm just listening answer, too slow. <laughs> that, that's the other possibility. The short answer is that we don't know. Yeah. The long answer is that for now, 
And in this emergency, most of my community think that we have to assume that you are, if not completely immune, going to be much in much less danger than somebody who's never had. So you may never get coronavirus again. That's how measles works. You may be able to get it again, but only after it evolves, which takes years. Um, that's how flu works. Or you may be able to get it again over after months or years. It depends on the specifics of the particular virus. But in any case, people who have a second infection after having an effective immune response are almost always in much less danger of illness and usually much less danger of transmission. So for now, we're acting like the people who've already had it are going to be safe because we're pretty sure they're relatively safe. Soon, we're going to want to know how safe they are, and we don't know that yet. If you, and, and I've received some email on this, if you have tested positive and then you recover and I, I guess have tested negative, when do you know when you're out of the woods, when you can go out from your quarantine? I, I think I'm going to not speculate on that because I'm right. not a public health professional and I'm not a medical doctor. Um, if it were me... I, the first thing I would do is check the official guidance from yeah. Public Health Ontario and, and Public Health Canada. Um, yeah, uh, That's we fine. all, you know, we all have to make these choices, right? We all have to live our lives and there are other reasons. Um, there's a standard that I've heard, and again, I would wanna urge your listeners to not take my <laughs> medical advice, but there's a standard that I've heard that two negative tests can be trusted. Right. Um, there's also the idea that you can be careful, you know, that you may still be infectious, but if you've recovered and had a negative test, it's very likely that you're much less infectious than you were. So instead of absolutely quarantining yourself, you might just be careful at a slightly lower level. What concerns you, what challenges you as we move forward with this? What is your greatest concern? The greatest concern is getting more information and using that information to balance. If it was just about what it takes technically to control the spread of disease, I don't think it would be that hard. In the absence of the fact that we have to live our lives, we have to protect people who have other problems, and we have to prevent the economy from collapsing too far down to the point where that could create problems um, that we might imagine rivaling the coronavirus epidemic. And I wanna be clear about that too, because it's not just a balance. An uncontrolled coronavirus epidemic would be a huge impact on the economy, right? Mm. But a too tightly controlled coronavirus epidemic may not be that big an impact on the economy, but might be big enough that we might need to try to balance. And Jonathan, so we need to know, no, that's good. Jonathan Dushoff has been with us. Sorry, Jonathan, we're tight on time here. Professor with the Biology Hi. Department and the Institute of Infectious Disease Research at McMaster University. Jonathan, thanks. Uh, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.